Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Friday, October 21st, 2011, and it is uh, is episode 768 today. It's a Friday. But since we did our call show on Monday, and I just don't feel like doing a feedback show this week because it's all gloom and doom, and I'm going to have to give it to you next week, and I'm going to have to do the gloom and doom show next week about what's going on in the economy. Don't want to do that today. I want to do something fun. So yesterday I had the good fortune to interview Mr. Craig Cole of the Outdoor Podcast, and I was going to hold his interview till next week. When I went through what I was going to have to give you today if I did a feedback show on the economic stuff that's going on out there, it made me sad. I don't want to be sad on a Friday. I don't want to be sad going into a weekend. I want to talk about something fun. So Craig and I talk about hunting and fishing and canoeing and all kinds of good outdoors skills that you can use to build up your self-reliance skills and uh, things you can do to bring realism to those training uh, those training exercises and things like that. He's a great guy, and I thought this would be a much better Friday show than me telling you about the future of our economy, which we all know ain't very good right now. So I'll have Craig on in just a minute. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtooth Tactical is an awesome company run by a veteran up in Idaho. And uh, anything you order from them, you know you're not just going to get at a fair price. You know what you're going to get with excellent service because that's how veterans do things. They do it what we used to call strack in the military, which for you civilian types, that just means spot on every time. That's what uh, that's what they do. And what you're going to what you're going to find there is everything you could possibly think of to live the tactical lifestyle. Check out their titanium spork. That is so. Freaking awesome, that product. They're the exclusive distributor for it. Uh, if you want Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, you name it, you'll find it at Sawtooth Tactical. Check them out today. Next up, ready-made resources. Hey, what more can we ask for from a company? Then for that company to say, this is the name of our company. And the name of that company be what the company does. Because that's what ReadyMade does. They provide all the resources for your prepping, ready-made, ready-to-go, point-click and order, shipped to your door with top-notch customer service. Everything from stuff for your garden to your alternative energy products to long-term storage food and more. If you can think of it and it has anything to do with your prepping, you will find it at ReadyMade Resources. Remember, ReadyMade has given away some of the best prizes we've ever done. An AR-7 survival rifle, a Rock River AR upper, and they're already asking what can we do next. They're a great sponsor. Please show them some love and give them some business. There's a lot of dollars that are going to be spent leading up to Christmas. Let's not overdo it, but some of it's going to happen anyway. Try to put some of it with ReadyMade or some of our other sponsors. This show happens in a large part because they have supported us for a very long time. That's all the sponsors. I want you guys to realize the average sponsor at TSP has been with TSP for more than two years. And the advertising stays sold out and they don't leave. That's because they're loyal to the show and they're loyal to you. Make sure once in a while you return that loyalty. 
Next up, you can connect with me Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. My new videographer seems to be working out. He had to get a sound card for his computer uh, to do some of the editing, but uh, we've got a lot planned. I'm putting a lot together, so we are going to have a ton of videos coming throughout the rest of the year. They'll probably start showing up sometime next week. I'm putting together outlines. We're doing better planning with them. The video production quality is about to go up because now I have someone that can do the the, the editing and the shooting for me And uh, I can just focus on putting the content together and delivering it to you. So if you're not a YouTube subscriber yet, please become one. Next up, remember, today is the last day. Actually, tomorrow is the last day for the bulk ammo contest. I guess they're going to choose to end that on a Saturday because it is the 22nd. Uh, all you have to do is go by their site and ask a question about a product and do, a, do it a certain way. There will be a link in today's show notes so you can try to win over $500 worth of ammo that they're giving away. Another great sponsor with another big prize. Next up. Remember, last but not least, you can support this show by becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade. That's where you support the show at about 20 cents an episode, and I give you something back. It's called return of investment. Uh, when I started this show, people wanted to donate money to help support it and get it off the ground. I refused every single donation uh, that ever was offered. In fact, a couple people found out my PayPal address and sent me money. I returned it. That is a fact. I would not build the company on charity. I would not build the company simply on listener support. I wanted listener support that I earned, not just through the content delivered, but through the product I give back. So what do we give back? Discounts to over 29 different vendors, significant discounts. Some are small, depending on margin, 5%. Some are 50% discounts. Uh, we do a discount with Silver and Gold Shop. It's a dollar off uh, silver coins, one particular coin. Mary Beth's trying to figure out how to do it more universal. That might not sound like a lot. No one does discounts on silver because the margins are razor thin to begin with for silver dealers. Uh, but we do that. That's just one example. Over $100 worth of free ebooks. I'm working on getting you guys another amazing ebook for free from an upcoming guest. Uh, we have a tremendous amount of value. There's some videos that are available nowhere else. The point is the product pays for itself, and you're supporting the show at a whopping... It's not even 20 cents an episode, folks. It's really about 18.3 cents is what it comes out to per episode uh, to support the show. So when you get off the air, if you think the show's worth two dimes, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get all those benefits, and you'll be supporting the show that you listen to every day. With that, I've got the housekeeping wrapped up, and let's get our guest on the line. All right, folks, as I said during the introduction segment, we are fortunate to have with us today Mr. Craig Cole. Craig is an avid outdoorsman, a hunter, and he decided to start his own show called The Outdoor Podcast as a method of sharing his passion for the outdoors with other people. Uh, those passions range from things like hunting and canoeing to wilderness self-reliance skills. He's currently a student with Dave Canterbury's Phase One course, and he was published in Issue 3 of Self-Reliance Magazine. He's here to talk to us today about things like adding realism to self-reliance. Hey, Craig, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Jack, thank you very much for having me on. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you today. Well, man, I, I like what you're doing there. Just checking your site out earlier today, and it looks like you got a lot going on, a lot of stuff our folks would be interested in hearing about. So I'm glad you're here with us today. I want to kind of start out with, you know, what you kind of proposed to me as a topic for today. Because uh, it looks like you and I could probably just sit here, sit here and shoot the breeze for the next four hours and not run out of stuff. But you wanted to talk about adding realism to self-reliance. Can, can you kind of explain to folks out there why you think it's important to even think that way in the first place? Because I think I know what you mean, but I want to let you speak for yourself. Sure, sure thing. You know, I, I really found myself uh, kind of like in a rut that whenever I'd go out into the woods and want to practice my self-reliance skills, you know, I tended to 
to do things when the conditions were perfect. And I tended to uh, basically allow me to set when I would do these skills. And I really started thinking one day, I, I started thinking like, you know, if the most common thing that I'm most likely to occur would be um, a fall from a tree stand while I'm hunting. And so then I started thinking like, well, if, I'm, if that's going to happen to me, you know, I'm probably going to re- receive some sort of injury with, to my hands or to my, uh, to my ankles or to my arm. And I really started thinking about that. I'm like, you know, I've never really taken the time to practice setting up a shelter, um, maybe starting a fire and doing these, these simple tasks that I do with both hands that I take for granted every time I go out in the woods. But then, you know, I really started thinking about it. I'm like, would I be able to perform these activities if I had a broken wrist or a broken arm or an injured ankle? And so then it, it really started to change the way that I would practice these skills. And so I, I really started to aim at trying to mimic real life situations whenever I would go out into the woods and practice scenarios just so that I could could uh, basically challenge myself to be ready for a real-life situation if it is ever to occur. Yeah, it's very interesting that you mentioned that. I, I think the furthest I've ever drug a deer in my life after taking one with a bow uh, was about seven miles, and it was the last time I ever drug a deer that far <laughs> because I decided at that point that that was far enough away from paved roads that, that I didn't need to go any further because when you put a deer down, especially a big deer, this is in PA where they you know, run 200 pounds, Uh, it's a long walk. Um, so you bring up an interesting point there. If you're out deer hunting, uh, odds are you know where you're at. You're probably not lost. Um, you're probably in a reasonable distance to a place where there's vehicles. So if you're stuck out there overnight, something probably's gone wrong or you'd be home eating bean soup. Yep. Yep, exactly. You know, I have three pieces of property that I can hunt on. One is uh, here at my house, which, you know, I'm, I'm really close to my house, of course. Uh, second one is a hundred, about 180 acres, and it's, it's simply a steep mountain. Uh, there are residents around there, but if I would go up on the very top of the mountain, I mean, it's going to be, if I was injured with a broken leg, it would be very hard to get down that steep mountain. And then the third property is a state uh, property that's about 15,000 acres. And you're talking an, an hour to get from using the road to get from the front to the back of the property. And then you're, you're looking at a couple hour hike, you know, in a healthy condition. And, you know, if, if you were injured, you know, that's going to really uh, multiply your, 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 your problems that you're going to have and the amount of time it's going to take you to get back to safety. And that's if, You know, people may know where you're hunting, you know, that you're on that property, but they don't know exactly where you set up your stand either a lot of times. So then people have got to come in and search for you. And I figured, you know, at the most, you know, if I didn't come home from a hunting trip that, you know, maybe 24 hours, maybe 48 hours, I'd have to prepare myself to be able to, you know, take care of myself, provide shelter and maybe some food and uh, things like that to protect myself from the elements until help actually arrived. I'd say with an injury, too, there are times where maybe you are capable of self-extracting yourself, but not in the dark. And as most hunters know, the time you're coming down from that tree stand is right at, right at dark. Uh, you, you kind of, you know, run out the, run out the day, so to speak, and there could be a time where you have an injury, and, and yeah, you could do it, but you might be there overnight. So exactly. it makes a lot of sense, and not really an angle I've ever come at it before. Um, you know, I always have guests put together some notes for me in advance of the show, And one of the things you mentioned in yours was the law of the lowest common denominator. Uh, can you tell us what you mean by that? 
yeah, this was just something I started thinking about. As I'm developing these thoughts and trying to set up these realistic uh, situations when I go out and practice, I started to think, I'm like, you know, this is kind of like the lowest common denominator that I thought that if I was injured, you know, if I had a broken arm or a broken wrist, I'm not going to be able to start a fire as easily as I could being healthy. And so I, I just called it the lowest common denominator that when you're put into a real life situation that you're going to revert back to not to the best of your ability when you're doing your skills, but more than likely it's going to be, you're going to be forced to do it at the least of your abilities, you know, maybe due to injury or maybe just due to the stress of, oh my gosh, you know, I've fallen from a tree stand or I'm lost, I'm injured. You know, you, you maybe you're not injured, but you're dealing with this stress of you cannot get back to your vehicle or to your house or to safety. And so, I just called it the lowest common denominator. It just simply means that you revert back to the least of your abilities and not to the best of your abilities when, whenever you're in a situation. Yeah, I think it also makes me think of things like, okay, wake up in the morning, I'm going to go hunt today, and I got really lucky and I was gifted with an inch of snow, and I could see really good and track really good, and I go out there and hunt that day. Sun comes up, melts the snow, and just soaks everything. And now I'm stuck out there on that same day that started out so wonderful, and I've got to start a fire. Well, it's one thing to start a bow drill or a hand drill fire with a kiln-dried piece of wood. It's another thing to start that fire with a piece of wood that was laying in the wet uh, snow melt, uh, moss, and all the other stuff that we had in winter. And even if you went out in those same woods in the summertime it, and used natural materials, it's a totally different scenario. You're probably not that concerned with a fire in June or July when it's dry out and hot out. But in, in no, no, December, November, when it's cold out and you need a fire, that's also when it's wet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the, the amazing thing about this is that not only does it apply to uh, wilderness self-reliance, but you can apply it to shooting. Um, you can also apply it to prepping. Anything that you do to to uh, prepare yourself, you know, for any type of situation, you can apply the lowest common denominator to. And you know, I love to start fire in the rain because you don't know the time you get lost. It could very well be raining or it could be snowing or even wind. You know, just trying to start a fire in the wind is is quite a chore. And if you've never done it before, you're not going to be very successful with it in a real life situation. Or when you start a fire in the wind, making sure once you get your fire going, you don't burn yourself up when you're sleeping <laughs> with your, your handmade shelter next to your fire. I mean, there's a yep. lot of things like that out there. Um you know, you talk a lot about realism. So what are some of the scenarios, other than the one we've already discussed, that are kind of important uh, when you're looking at realism, things that actually do happen and are likely to happen based on, you know, your activities or the activities of others such as myself that like to get out there hunting, fish, and backpack, and what have you? Sure. Yeah, well, the, the, I started off with uh, trying to mimic a, a tree stand injury. So what I did was I took some rocks and put them in one of my shoes and tightened up my boots as quick, as tight as I could to mimic um, uh, an, injure to, an injury to my ankle and to my feet. And then also put my strong arm, I'm, I'm extremely dominant right-handed, I put that in a sling to mimic those injuries. And so that's one way. And then I went out and set up a, a shelter and started a fire and things like that. Um, the other things, you know, you should practice uh, starting fires with one hand. Um, you know, and also as we talked about with the rain, the snow and the cold and those kinds of things. Um, but also in, maybe instead of setting up a tent, 
Maybe you set up um, a, a primitive shelter, you know, a debris shelter of some sort. Um, also, you know, a lot of times people go out and we take our 10-piece or 20-piece kits along. Well, maybe we should think about maybe one time leaving that home and maybe going out with just like a minimalist kit, you know, maybe like these survival bracelets that we have that are stuffed with uh, little goodies in them. Take one of those out there and see if we actually can survive with those kinds of things. Um, you know, and like I said, this applies to many different um, uh, hobbies out there. You know, we, we can apply it to shooting as well. Uh, how many times uh, have we tried to draw our guns that are concealed? You know, I think a lot of us have um, concealed carry permits. Well, has anyone ever tried to draw their weapon with winter gloves on? I mean, who's to say that you're not going to have to do this only in the summertime? Maybe you might have to do it in the wintertime when you have um, gloves on or maybe uh, trying to draw it up against the wall or underneath a table. You know, if, if you're or in a somebody's restaurant. grabbing you by the throat, shoving you against the ground. Exactly. Exactly. It's, you know, the, 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 the possibilities are limitless of the realistic scenarios that you can throw together for this. Yeah. Uh, it makes me think back when, uh, when Val was over here, uh, for Val Ryazanov from, uh, ballistic striking and the, the, he's a guy that teaches system and Russian martial arts. And I uh, was a member of the KGB and had one of his people with him and we were training with airsoft pistols. And you had one guy playing the bad guy shooting at and you're shooting back. And then you got this six, six foot two inch Russian dude hurling tennis balls at your head at about 60 miles an hour um, while you're trying to shoot. And it, it changes everything about your movement. your Because you, know, you can train with a with an airsoft piece of equipment, and there's realism there, but it doesn't really have a fear. You don't really care if you get hit. You know, right. you might try to simulate that, but when there's a tennis ball coming for your head, uh, you don't want to get hit with it. You think it will kill you, but right. it will still good. So it makes you get off the X, so to speak. And I think there's a lot of cool things that we can do like that outdoors and indoors. Here, here, something I want to bounce off because I've been thinking about doing this, and I'm thinking I'm just going to get so many armchair ass cracks on YouTube if I do this. <laughs> but my belief is that there are a large number of people out there that if you hand them a Bic lighter and they don't have any uh, charcoal or lighter fluid or something like that, even on a decently dry day, would have a hard time building a fire. And I think that some people need, before you worry about making a coal with a bowl drill, is understand the system of kindling and small twigs and actually just building a normal fire. Uh, Brian from ITS was up at the house this weekend, and we had a little, our little fire pit out on the porch, and we you know built a fire both nights. And we were kind of talking about that and saying we've both seen places where people are sitting there with a lighter, and they can't get a fire out of it. Yeah, is exactly. I mean, the way that I started learning to 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 build a fire, uh, you know, I was eight nine years old, and we learned to do it with one match, and that was the foundation that I came from. That it, you know, it, try to do it with one match, and if you can do it with one match, then you really learn the basics of starting a fire. And I think a lot of times we have this uh, this machismo in the survival community of, uh, you know, I don't want to use a lighter. Well, you know, the, the, the thing, the lesson that I learned when I set up this scenario of trying to start with, with one hand was that number one was the pain. I, I set the scenario up way too good because I was dealing with an extreme amount of pain <laughs> coming from my ankles. I mean, I had yeah. no clue how much pain I was really in for. And I, I've got a YouTube video for it. And it, but you really don't understand how much pain that I was in. And when I went to start the fire, I mean, I, I really, I, I, I cheated with it. You know, I used my, my hand that was in a sling and I shouldn't have done that, but it was simply because of the pain that I was dealing with. And I learned there a lighter is going to be your friend in your kit and that 
you need to have a lighter with you just to make it a little bit easier. And, you know, you, you have to learn the basics of, of starting a fire before you can even use a, a fair seam rod, you know. If you can't do it with a lighter, you're going to have even more of a time with char cloth or uh, flint steel and, and those kinds of things. Yeah, and I know people out there are shaking their heads right now, but I'm, I'm telling you folks, I've been places. So we went to a, a church function one night, and they were playing like you know, they, like they set up an outdoor drive drive-in type thing, you know, with the projector and all. And they were they were trying to start a fire, and there were four dudes over there trying to start a fire. And the one guy headed for his truck, and he was going to go buy one of them fire logs from the grocery store. And I went over there in a couple seconds and had it burning, and it, it's just you know. There's a system to it, and I know you. some of you guys out there are laughing at it, but my question for you is, just because you know how to do it, do your kids, do your wife, does your brother, you know, what have you, um, because, you know, like Craig's saying here, you could be injured to the point where somebody else has to do this stuff for you. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it, it's not just for us, it's for other people. I'm, I'm pretty fortunate my wife can start a pretty good fire, <laughs> so... <laughs> But yeah, you never know what the situation is going to present itself. You know, we need to practice and be be prepared for any situation that comes about. I know you're working with Dave, so I know you probably are big on the five C's. Um, but what are some of the basic things you try to always carry when you go out? Oh, uh, number one is my knife. I mean, I I I I, I refuse to go anywhere without a knife. And, uh, you know, I always carry at least my 10 piece kit with me. Uh, you know, people, uh, especially my wife, she gets a crack at it whenever we go canoeing for a little simple day trip. And I'll take my, my backpack and she knows what's in there and she'll kind of smirk and, and laugh at it. Not, not make fun of me, but she just thinks it's kind of cute and everything because we're just going out on the day trip. But, you know, one of the things that I learned even on a canoe trip for a couple of hours, you never know when a thunderstorm is going to hit. And if you don't have trash bags or things like that, you're going to have a miserable time. Um, you know, also a uh, fair seam rod. Uh, I never go anywhere without my with one of those. I mean, I keep one on my keychain with me, um, you know, uh, uh, just anything to start fires with um, and, and knives and, and really my bag, you know, that, that, that stuff with all my goodies. Those are the main things I like to carry with me. I'm pretty big on cordage, too, and I know Dave recently has gotten to where he's he's not hip on paracord anymore. And, uh, but what I told him in uh, Denver was I've gone to where I replace all my boot laces with parachute cord. Uh-huh. And I, if you need the cordage, it's there. It's not like carrying anything extra. And you can strip out the seven inner cords, put the jacket back into your boot, and you still have a boot lace. And then you've got seven cords that can be used for limb lines or snares or any other type of cordage. Um, so that's something I've, you know, even he's like, I think he's on card line is his big thing now. And I've been carrying that for years, but I still think paracord has a big place in our, our kits as far as I'm concerned anyway. Yeah. And the stuff is virtually indestructible. I have a little tarp shelter down in the woods that I've had set up for months and that this stuff just refuses to, to rot and it's incredible stuff. And I carry about six inches with me. Um, you know, all braided up and everything on my keychains that that's always with me. And uh, just you never know when you're going to need it. And I'm the worst at, at replacing my boot laces, so I do too, man. All my boots have paracord in them because it's just right there. You know, I never have to worry about buying new shoelaces. You just have it. What I told him was that episode where he took half his boot lace to make a snare. If he had those, he could have made seven stairs, still had a boot lace. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he kind of laughed and said, well, yeah, you got a point. Uh, but yeah, I'm still big on the paracord thing. Um, 
You you have been writing for Dave's magazine though, right? You got an article published there. Yeah, yeah. Um, called "Discovering Your 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 Outdoor Space." It was just kind of like an inspirational story of of just different ways that you can find a place to practice your skills if you don't have one. Um, that's the only one I've gotten published to date so far. Well, that's cool though. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit because I think there's a lot of people out there that you know they look at. Well, I've got five acres in the mountains now, or what have you, and. Uh, But, I mean, there's people that just feel like there's no place they can find to do this stuff without being harassed. I did one video where I cut a tree down with a, you know, a little Swiss Army knife saw. Like, man, if I did that in a park near me, they would have my my hide or whatever, you know. So what can people do to kind of find a place for themselves? Well, I think number one is to look for the everyday things, activities that we participate in and try to turn those into um, skill-based practice sessions. Uh, you know, a lot of us have fire pits in the backyards. If you don't have a pit, you know, you have those commercial uh, fire places that you can buy and you set on your deck and things like that. Well, instead of starting a fire with uh, with matches, set it up and practice with your ferrocium rod. You know, that that's a simple way that anybody, whether you're in a uh, subdivision or out in the country like me, you know, anybody can practice those skills like that. Or if you're starting a fire in, in your um, your wood-burning stove, try to do it with your ferrocium rod, you know. Those are just simple activities that, that, that you do on a day-to-day basis that you can turn into a skills-based training. Um, another Another way is, you know, maybe you don't have access to property, but how many wildlife managements, you know, I know here in West Virginia, I mean, we, we are filled with wildlife management areas, but, you know, you could go there or go to a state park and camp out, and while you're camping out, you can practice your skills there as well. Um, I know um, Antone, uh, the paracord guy, he actually went to a church and got permission to use their five acres, and they were like open him, uh, you know, they were just like, sure, man, you know, you can come here anytime you want. And so there are ways, there are properties out there that we can find that you don't have to necessarily own, but you can still get permission to go there and practice your skills. You know, and I think a lot of people are, you know, get, getting to the point where they're proficient enough that they have a desire to teach. And your little comment about a church right there is probably plenty of churches, and a lot of churches have pretty good-sized hunks of land to go along with them, and a lot of them are wooded and all because they want it to be pretty. They would be open to somebody starting up a youth group and teaching youth this stuff because, you know, I mean, it, it kind of fits right in with the, the message of most religious institutions of being responsible for yourself and others to have some self-reliance skills. And not everybody that wants to teach this stuff wants to be on National Geographic or Discovery or whatever. They just want to share it. And I'm sure you've learned this. This is something I've learned over the years, and it's, whether it's outdoor skills or survival training or sales or anything. I never really learned anything fully until I had to teach it to somebody else. Exactly. Exactly. I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, I, I tell people on my podcast, you know, I, I'm I'm not an expert. You know, I'm just a guy out here that is passionate about the outdoors and and about the the things that I like to do, and I just want to share it with everybody. But I tell you, I've learned. I mean, the best way to learn something is really to turn around and teach it to someone else. On that note, man, I know you're a hunter, and and I am as well. I've been a big time bow hunter. Are you a bow hunter or just a rock? Oh yeah. Okay, so you're right. a bow hunter. That's why we get along so well immediately. <laughs> but uh, but you know, when I grew up as a kid, and I went out and hunted for deer my first time, I had an uncle with me that really knew what he was doing and was able to get me a you know a shot right away and was able to make that shot, and then we put that deer down. 
And we went out, and he basically took his knife and said, I'll do the first one you ever shoot in your life for, and you'll do the rest of them. And he showed me exactly what to do. And the second deer I ever took, um, you know, he was basically there at my side telling me what to do, how to gut it, field dress it, take it home, skin it, quarter it. And I guess because of that, I've never really seen that as anything other than something that, you know, hunters know how to do. But I get people asking me all the time, you know, how do I process a deer? And if, if I could stand there with you, and I'm sure you're the same way, if I could stand there with you with a knife in each of our hands and show you what to do, no problem at all. But are there, do you know of any resources or ways a person that's like just getting started, because they're afraid I'm going to go out and get a deer and I'm not going to know what to do with it, can, can learn this stuff? Yeah, I, th- I think I've seen some videos in, uh, you know, different survival magazines that, that'll, that are based on maybe processing deer and, and wild game and things like that. I mean, I'm kind of like you. I, I learned by having a mentor and, you know, I haven't looked, but may, I wonder if maybe a YouTube out there. I mean, I'm sure somebody, uh, has a YouTube video. I know, uh, Realtree, they just produced a video that, that they released on Facebook and it showed you how to, um, actually field dress a deer. Um, so I'm sure YouTube has those things, but I, I think the best way, and it, I'm just like you, I, you know, I learned through having a mentor show me, and uh, you know, first I learned how to field dress, and then, then eventually I had someone show me how to actually process the entire deer, and uh, usually after about, you know, after I watched someone do it one time, I was able to do it after that. I'd also say to, to me anyway, it's one of the most valuable skills you can learn. Because if if I teach you how to do a deer, you can do a hog, you can do a cow, you can do anything. I, honestly, I could show you how to butcher a rabbit, and you could go up and butcher a deer. It's a little bit more mechanically difficult, but all the anatomy is pretty much the same. The cuts of meat, uh, the way that you pull a hide back, how to keep hair out of, out of the meat, dealing with some of the internal organs like the bladder to not get stuck. I mean, it's it's always the same. And it, to me, once you know how to do one, it's like riding a bike. You can get on any bicycle. It can be a 10-speed or a 12-speed or a BMX. And, and with, with you know, butchering game, once you know how to butcher one game animal, it, it's pretty uh, universal. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a very valuable skill to learn. I mean, you know, you, you may need it, you know, at some point in the future outside of a hunting situation. And, and it's definitely a skill worth learning. You, you focus a lot on the outdoors because it's what you love, but um, I think you listen to our show and you probably are paying attention to what's going on around you. Kind of, do you see the correlation between these outdoor skills and just being prepared for life in general, or some of the things we might soon face in this country? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do. I mean, you know, I, I know I hear you talk about all the time that, you know, if, if a situation would ever hit the fan, you know, everyone thinks they're going to run for the hills and start hunting deer. And, you know, the, those deer may not be there when everyone rushes into the woods. But, yeah, you, you just never know. And I, I know the outdoor Whenever I'm out there, I just try to prepare for whatever's going to happen. And I know that every time I go into the field, I'm preparing myself for a situation that may occur down the road. Uh, I don't know if it ever will, but when it does, I want to be prepared for it. And I think is the more outdoor skills you can prepare yourself with, um, you know, the better off you are. I mean, we do canoeing now for enjoyment, but you know, 200 years ago, that was a form of transportation. You know, people, that's a way of life, you know, was, was canoeing. And now it's just a fun thing for us. But, you know, 
I'm not saying it's ever going to get that bad, but you know, if if I ever needed it, you know, I have a canoe to to use as transportation if I needed to. And so I look at every time I go in the outdoors, I'm practicing, I'm preparing my skills so that if I'm ever called upon to need them, that they'll be as sharp as possible. Yeah, canoeing is an interesting one because the rivers and streams were the highways before we had highways and train tracks, and I don't think most people really are in touch with how much you can move with a canoe. Mm-hmm. I think you yeah. just did an article or a podcast I, I saw on your site that was why why canoes are better than kayaks or something like that. Uh huh. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've done solo canoe trips, uh, you know, by myself. I've done them with groups of people, um, led groups of forty, fifty people before. I do a lot of with just me and my wife. You know, I've done a lot of canoeing, and I mean, you can you can do quite a bit if you're just out canoeing, and depending on the current and the water depths and things like that. I mean, I, I've canoed about. 15, 16 miles one day by myself. And, uh, th- that's a pretty good movement there. If, if, you know, to get from one point to another point, uh, 16 miles is, is a good movement. Yeah. I've actually been looking at some of the areas around here in the Washita's where either the river is or some of the, the coves from the lake are and thinking that combining canoeing with hunting might be a cool thing to do because there's places where there's no roads or trails in. Uh, and you could canoe to a shoreline and you could hunt an area and probably not see another hunter. And, yeah. uh, you know, I talked about dragging a deer seven miles. I'd much rather canoe a deer seven miles than, than drag him seven miles. Uh, if I can drag him a few hundred yards and throw him in a canoe, uh, I'd be much happier with the situation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have an area like that, that where we go canoeing. It's uh, wildlife management on both sides of the river. And, uh, you can, you technically can go in there and hunt, but it's extremely steep. And I've, I've tried to find people, uh, I guess crazy enough to go in there with me, uh, to, to do that exact, exact same thing. You know, you canoe in, you get your deer and you canoe out. And, uh, it's, it's definitely something that's on my list to do. I haven't done it to date, but, uh, I, I need to, need to get it done. Well, maybe I'll come up there and visit you, or you can come down here and visit me, and we'll do it together because I'm up for it. Uh, sure. you, you seem to be big on the way you term it is finding adventure in your life. I guess we're kind of talking about it, but uh, I, I guess you probably mean some other things about that as well. Yeah. You know, adventure, I mean, it has really uh, – I, I just cannot explain to you what it has done for my life. Uh, you know, uh, I, I've always have grown up in the outdoors, you know, started uh, camping and, and hiking and those and fishing and those things as a kid. And the older I've gotten, the more adventures I've gotten involved in. But, you know, really for me, it's it's a way of escape. You know, not only is it a way of practicing your skills, but it's a way of escape from from the, you know, how many of us have jobs that we absolutely hate to do from nine to five, you know, and when you get out on the weekends or if you can get outside in, in, in the evening times and participate in some sort of outdoor adventure, I mean, it is absolute therapy. And, uh, you know, I had a rough time. Uh, Eight ten years ago, had a extreme case of burnout and actually uh, changed careers at that point. And if it wasn't for hunting and for outdoor adventures, I mean, I don't know where I would be today. And it, it really is therapy. And uh, it's just I cannot say enough about people. If you've never been a part of an adventure, if you don't like to get in the outdoors, you know, find something. You know, whether it's gardening or taking a walk. You know, that's. One of the things I try to get people, you know, that they think of hunting is, well, I'm not a hunter, so I can't enjoy adventure. Well, there's lots of ways of enjoying adventure, you know, besides just hunting. Well, and if you if you like walking, hunting is walking with a gun in many instances. That's yep. a, try to get people like to cross that bridge, you know. You'll take a walk in the woods, yeah, we'll take a gun with you. 
You know, if you don't, if you choose not to shoot anything, that's your choice. But, you know, just start to gain the experience and you start to look at things differently as well. And as far as like geography, you must be pretty much literally in heaven with West Virginia. Um, I mean, you can't really do much better as a place to enjoy the outdoors. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, I just love it. I mean, we, you know, we have, uh, several rivers here that we can canoe. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm surrounded by woods here at my house. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of wildlife management areas. I think in my county, uh, the population is only like 20,000 people, so it's extremely rural. And we have, uh, the largest, uh, state-owned population out of all the counties in West Virginia. So it, we, I'm right here in the midst of adventure heaven. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, I'm, when I was looking for a place to move to out of Texas, it was really high on my list, but it just geographically isn't close enough to family in Texas for me to be able to make that sale. It took me nine years to close this deal here in Arkansas. So, <laughs> <laughs> But, it, it, folks, it, you know, I always get people asking me where, where to look for land, and I would tell you Arkansas, Missouri, West Virginia, Western Virginia, Western Pennsylvania, they're all just beautiful areas. Yeah, yeah, they are. And you got some affordable land up your way too. Yeah, yeah, we are. It, you know, the the land has gone up a little bit since nine eleven, but now with the economy resetting things, um, you know, it's definitely affordable out here. So, what are some of the other things you like to do? Canoeing, hunting. I guess you're a fisherman too. Yeah, yeah, I've always been a fisherman. Uh, the one thing that always eluded me was fly fishing. So I started uh, fly fishing this year. Uh, that's been a fun trip to do. Um, you know, I do a look, uh, you know, a lot of shooting guns, um, you know, just, man, you know, it just varies, you know, it, through, through the time of year, I do a, uh, turkey hunting and fishing and canoeing and a little bit of hiking and, uh, camping and those kinds of things. You want to talk a little bit maybe about what your EDC is, your everyday carry, uh, not in the woods, just every day, you know, walking down the street and what have you. Sure, sure. I well, I carry with me right now. I have a, a little aluminum carabiner, and I have another little carabiner that I got at REI that doubles as a bottle opener. Which, how many times do you need a bottle opener? I mean, you'll be surprised how often you'll need that. Um, I carry um, a little ferrocium rod and striker with uh, tied on with a little piece of paracord. Uh, then I have a, a little braided. Uh, Little, um, about six inches long of, um, braided paracord that's on, on my keychain. And then I also have a little thing that I actually sell on my website. It's, it's a cobra weave, um, tied onto my keychain. And at the end of it is a little LED light. And this is, especially for urban areas, I mean, how many times do you come home at night and you forget to turn your porch light on? You have to dig in the dark to get your keys out. Well, now I have this little LED light to show me you know, where the, where the door is and things like that, just to make it that much easier. And, uh, and that's really about all that I carry with me every day. Um, um, little, little knife and, um, concealed gun and things like that. One of the episodes I saw on your site that I wasn't able to uh, listen to, but uh, I'm going to, um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about it. It was kind of a, uh, maybe a little tongue in cheek. It was episode 23, <laughs> hiding gear from your spouse. And it makes me think there was a, uh, it was like one of the bow silencer companies did a commercial where the guy's going to go fishing and he's sneaking out of the house early in the morning and the stairs creep and his wife catches him. And then the bow hunter's sneaking and he has the sil- like the Matthew silencer on the step. 
and he gets out of the house. And it was making me think of that. But, but it says, I'm reading your show notes here. It says, if you're a married lady, please do not listen to this podcast. So what's up with that? You know, the funny thing about that is my wife listened to the very first podcast that I ever did, and she never listened to any others. And I knew when I recorded that podcast, I'm like, you know what? She's going to hear this. And I actually talk about it. I'm like, if you're listening to this, please turn this off. And sure enough, not only does she listen to it, but she has the kids there while she's listening to it as well. And uh, that was um, actually inspired. I, I, another podcast I listened to is the Orbis Fly Fishing Podcast. And they actually did um, just a little question. Um, answering that, uh, you know, how do you hide fly gear from your spouse? And I was thinking, immediately heard it, and I'm like, oh, I've got to do this because I'm, I've gotten pretty good at that. And uh, but when my wife heard it, it went like a lead balloon. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, MythBusters successfully floated a lead balloon. I don't know if you ever saw, if you ever watched that show, but they they made one and made it work out of very thin lead. <laughs> I love that show. I haven't seen that episode. It was, it was kind of, I didn't think it would work, but it did. So yeah, hide stuff from your, from, from your spouse, uh, and you got caught. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've kind of have retired a lot of those techniques over the years. Um, but yeah, there, it was quite something else, I tell you. <laughs> so I, I mean, I kind of bring that up because I get the feeling that like, by seeing that and then hearing your philosophy now, maybe you're less stuff centric today than you were, you know, maybe 10 years ago. Like you maybe are you focusing more now on what you know and know how to do than what you carry with you? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, and, and uh, I've really have uh, through listening to your show, you know, it's caused me to reevaluate a lot of things and, you know, it, it's not worth, you know, for many years, I, you know, I wrecked our, our family budget with buying gear for the outdoors and sneaking it in and, you know, so my wife wouldn't know about it. And I've just learned that, you know, it really holds you back and, and that you need to take care of yourself financially. And so that, that's part of it. And, you know, the, there's also the adage that the old saying of, uh, the more you know, the less you need. And so I'm, I'm trying to aspire to that to where, you know, I have a lot of knowledge and don't need a lot of gear. I, I completely agree with that, but I do like some stuff. And maybe since you're an outdoorsman, we could talk a little about some of your favorite stuff for hunting. Um, I know you're a bow hunter. Are you also a rifle hunter? Yeah, yeah. What's your caliber of choice there in West Virginia? Right now, I'm using a Mazan uh, Nagant. Uh, okay. Uh, kind of sporterized 7.62 by 54 and uh it's just uh, i started collecting mazan nagants uh, several years ago and i uh, actually had a a 270 a savage 270 that i used for many years and i uh, decided to to not use it and go over to my mazan nagant I, I just love it it's a um the x sniper version and uh it i love it well, they're affordable too, and they are bulletproof. I mean, they were built for Soviet soldiers around the turn of the last century. So, uh, if they're still here, you can count on them. Uh, have you ever checked out a site called surplusrifle.com? Oh yeah, yeah, I love that. <laughs> they have one there. The guy called it Little Black Beauty. It was a it was a Nagant that he uh, he customized with a black synthetic stock and polished the bolt and all. It was just a gorgeous little rifle when he was done with it. Uh huh. Yeah, and I've, that's where I learned to, to do all this sporterizing. And the way I can't remember if the Little Black Beauty, um, if it was a full sporter or if, if it was one that he could easily transfer back to the original. But I left everything to where I could 
take it apart and put it right back in the original condition. I have a scope on it, but it's not drilled and tapped. And uh, so it's 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 a sporterized version, but it can easily revert back to its original military conversion. I don't remember which one he did. Two that he did his black rifles, and one could go back, and one could. And I don't remember which one it was, but that that's kind of cool. There's some cool stuff out there too. Like uh, I don't know how you did your scope mount, but there's some that basically you remove the sight and it mounts like a forward mount scope. Is that what you did? Huh? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I, I have a um, a long eye relief scope on it. it. You know, it's it's maybe I think four X. You know, so it's not yeah. very powerful. But the majority of the deer I shoot in West Virginia are less than 75 yards away, so I don't need a real, you know, powerful scope. Yeah, I never took a 75-yard shot or longer at a deer in Pennsylvania. It's the same kind of woodland environment. They they're just not out there. You were talking earlier about how people think they're going to go up and shoot deer if the you know if the, if the shit is the fan or whatever. And uh, my my statement to them is, you can walk through the woods all you want throughout the fall and see the deer run around. Third day of gun season, go out there and look. That's what it'll look like. And there, there, a bunch of guys in orange and no deer. Um, as soon as people start shooting at them, they disappear pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, and you know, even if you read the old stories of, uh, you know, Simon Kitten and Daniel Boone and uh, Lewis and Clark, you know, just after short times of hunting, they had to go further and further away to get game because it would just, you know, travel further away and become became harder to hunt. You know, we've talked a lot about deer, man. Are you into like small game hunting as well, like grouse or, or pheasant or squirrel or rabbit or anything like that? I, I do a little bit of squirrel hunting. Uh, I've done some pheasant hunting over the years. Um, around here, though, it's more of like what I call a canned hunt. You yeah. Know, you go into a reserve, uh, but it's still, I mean, you still got to find the, the birds. You still got to shoot them. Um, and uh, I do a little bit of turkey hunting, and uh, that's pretty much it. I've always found like squirrel hunting to be like when people say to me like I want to get started hunting um, and I don't really have somebody to work with heavily locally and all this. Well, once you know you're safe, go out and squirrel hunt because again, I think it's a thing where people look at them in a park and the kids feed them a peanut or whatever. <laughs> But when you go out in the woods and try to shoot a squirrel uh, and they know they're being hunted, they are an elusive little critter. And uh, you learn stalking, you learn still hunting, you learn uh, so much from it. You learn shot placement because it's the first time you shoot one, you know, through the backside and ruin the meat with a 22, you won't do that again. You, yep. you learn... Yeah, if you hunt with a buddy, you learn, you know, driving techniques, and you learn basically everything you need to know about deer hunting, other than accounting for the wind by hunting squirrels. Yeah, exactly. And here in West Virginia, you, you may have had these up in Pennsylvania, but we have fox squirrels. Yep. And uh, they're they're larger than a gray squirrel, but man, they I think they are more challenging than a gray squirrel. They know when the hunt is on, and they will hide from you a lot harder, a lot lot more than a gray squirrel will. And uh, so they're very challenging, you know. And and uh, squirrel hunting is the first hunt I ever did. You know, it's a, it's yep. a good entry into hunting. Yeah, one of the first things I ever learned when I started hunting them alone was take, when they when they flatten out against a tree, take your hat off and throw it on the other side. And when they, oh. come, they come sneaking around, that's when you take them out. And they do. They're pressed flat to that tree, man, and they just work their way around there. Uh, but, yeah, I think it's something, you know, I bring it up because it's just something I want to see more people doing. And I think I've talked to a lot of hunters that said just what you just said now. Even if they don't hunt squirrel anymore, it was the first thing they ever hunted because the seasons are long. The limits are liberal. There's lots of them out there. Well, some years, some years I've seen where, like, one year there's a billion of them, the next year there's hardly any, and then they, they run through cycles. But generally, you can, 
you can scare up a few, and, and you can learn again about meat processing and everything else. Um, so anyway, man, it's been a great interview. Um, I'm going to recommend folks definitely get by your website, which again is outdoorpodcast.com. Uh, how many episodes have you done so far? Oh, uh, man. I think I'm up to like 32 maybe off the top of my head. I'm looking right now for you. 32, you're right. You do better than me. I don't know how many I've done. <laughs> uh, so you got 32 episodes. How often do you do the show? I do it uh, weekly. That's okay. what I aim for. I haven't got one out this week, but I'm going to work on it uh, probably today and tomorrow. Very cool. Well, yeah, definitely check out uh, Craig's site. Again, OutdoorPodcast.com. And, hey, Craig, thanks for joining us today on the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spears with today, along with Craig Cole, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares.